0: Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. And as you do, I will say, forgot to mention that part when I was explaining the order of service. Mike does a wonderful job at keeping us updated on what's going on in the life of our church, as well as um, informing uh, our people on how to give. That's always feels awkward for people um, to hear what the word says about giving, and it shouldn't because um, God is uh, the one who created money, and oftentimes, if it feels awkward, it's because um, we feel that way ourselves, and maybe we're thinking about money in a more uh, worldly sense than in a in a biblical sense. And so, I'm thankful for Mike, who is able to help us, because there's been so little teaching on what the Bible says about money and how to give rightly, biblically, um, and in a way that that honors the Lord. And so. Um, He's helping us in that way uh, to to move um, to what the scriptures say about giving, rather than maybe what we've heard in the past. So, yeah, thankful for Mike. And now we move to Luke chapter 24, last chapter, friends. We're here, and uh, we've been in Luke for four years, as I've mentioned a little bit over, and... uh, we move to chapter twenty-four today, and um, let's begin as we always do by by reading the passage together. Luke chapter twenty-four, starting in verse one down through verse twelve. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, what we're seeing in this passage is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the main point. That's pretty apparent and obvious. That's a particular doctrine that's being made known here and that's where we sit, where God has us today in his providence as we make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke, um, that Jesus Christ has literally and bodily, actually and physically raised from the dead. That's why I've entitled the message, The Resurrection of the Lord, because that's exactly what's happening in this section now I said this would be a two-parter, so it says part two, but we're gonna have to make it three parts. And uh, the reason being is because last week, as you know, we we spoke about the significance of the resurrection. Oftentimes, it's misunderstood. We don't even know really what it means and why it's important. So a couple weeks ago, we spoke about why the resurrection was important. And then as we get into the account today, and as I was studying all week, it's like, you know those boxes that you just open one and then there's a smaller one underneath and then you open that one and then there's a a smaller one underneath that one and so on and so forth. That's that's kind of what you find. And to faithfully exposit what's here and to expose everything that God has in this account, um, we're gonna have to take... um, we're going to have to take more time on it, and um, and so also we got really no rush to be anywhere else. This is all God's word anyway, right? And uh, and we're having a great time, no matter if we're here or we're someplace else. Um, we're hearing God's word, and uh, God's word is is doing work in us. By the way, next week Josh Seal will be here, and so he'll preach kind of a standalone message, and you get to hear from him. The church we planted, the pastor we sent out. And then we'll get back into this part three in in a couple weeks. But part one, as I mentioned, we looked at the significance of the resurrection. That is to say, why this is such a crucial reality. Why is the resurrection such a critical doctrine? And the reason why we started there a couple weeks ago is because I hope that you would have that truth weighing on your mind as we go through the actual event, the actual account, which is what we're doing today, which, by the way, um, I did the same thing for the Doctrine of the Incarnation last week for Christmas. So if you weren't here, I really recommend you go back to listen to both of those messages. And they can really work in tandem for you to help you understand both of those doctrines and can serve really as a resource for you moving forward. Understanding the Incarnation and understanding the Resurrection and even can help you as you explain those doctrines to those you disciple. So it's been a wonderful time. And now we move into this event. But we've seen the reality of Christ's literal resurrection. It's so crucial, the teaching of it, the doctrine of it. What the Bible describes is the significance of it. It's crucial to our lives because we have spoke about four things. Why Why the resurrection was important, I pointed you to, to, actually, I think, five realities here. Number one, it proves the lordship of Christ. Secondly, the resurrection validates the sufficiency of Christ's atoning death Thirdly, it guarantees that we have a living Savior. Number four, it makes possible regeneration and sanctification for the believer. And then lastly, it guarantees resurrection after death for every true believer. I mean, could you get any more significant when we think about a teaching from Scripture? And so now here we come to the actual account of Christ's resurrection from the dead. It's actually happening. We're looking at the actual event at this point. And that's what I just read to you earlier, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. Jesus, remember, has perfectly followed his father's predetermined plan. He has also been in control, listen now, at every point. We have seen that. The scripture makes clear that Testimony after testimony, he has been in control at every point along this journey to the cross and through his death. He has been proven innocent, unblemished. That has been made clear. He is God's lamb who atones for sin and fulfills the scriptures. He's made that clear. He has been arrested. He has been unjustly tried He has been crucified. He's been buried. He's been laid in an actual tomb. He is being guarded night and day by two Roman soldiers. And then here we sit. And this will be the literal, actual, physical, bodily resurrection from the dead that will yield all of the spiritual benefits that we discussed a couple weeks ago. So this is the account of such a significant act. And Luke moves us through this account in four stages. Four stages. And those will serve as our headings as we make our way through in this week and in a couple weeks. The first is the discovery in verses 1 through 3. Second, then, is the declaration in verses 4 through 7. Following is the disclosure In verses 8 through 10, and finally, there's the disbelief in verses 11 through 12. Discovery, declaration, disclosure, and disbelief. This is how Luke chooses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to divide, record, express this account, this doctrine, this event, this reality, and that Jesus, who was and is the Christ, rose from the dead. And today, we're just going to cover the first point. So we're, we're just going to begin with the discovery. I had to cut it off somewhere because I knew we couldn't get all of it. So we're going to spend our time this morning in the discovery. And uh, there's a few things that we're going to follow, a few trails we're going to follow while we're in there. And then we'll move to the next, the declaration next week or in a couple weeks. So the discovery, verses 1 through 3, let's read it. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And so here we begin with the discovery. We begin with this discovery, pretty, pretty simple. They discover the empty tomb. We discover here the empty tomb. Now verse one begins with, but on the first day of the week, but let's stop right there. told you we're going to, it's going to take some time to get through this thing. Luke begins with the verse, with the word, but which tells us where he is in his train of thought. Okay. It connects us with what he's just told us pretty simple. So let's look up to verse 55 of the previous chapter, just to few verses up. Chapter 23. It says. The women. Who had come with him. From Galilee. Followed and saw the tomb. And how his body was laid. Then they returned. And prepared spices. And ointments. On the Sabbath. They rested according to the commandment. But. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. And so here's what we see from these previous verses. Is that some of the women who had come with him from Galilee, which specifically at this point, um, as Mark 15:47 says, the ones who saw the tomb at this point, are Mary Magdalene and the other Mary? We're going to talk about some of these characters in just a minute. So, some of the women specifically here that are mentioned that are looking at the tomb while Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are preparing the body, those, these two women here are Mary Magdalene and Mary, the other Mary. And they're standing across from the tomb. As he was buried by Joseph and Nicodemus, and they saw the tomb, saw his body wrapped, and it says in verse 55 saw how his body was laid. They see the tomb, they see how he's laid, they see that he's in there, and they saw how his body was wrapped. And then it says they returned home, verse 56, before this, that is before the Sabbath began. The Sabbath was approaching. We've seen that. Before the Sabbath began, which they needed to be gone and at home to keep to the law faithfully, they returned home. And when they returned home, their plan was to prepare more spices and more ointments for Jesus' body. And on Saturday, which was the Sabbath for the for the Jews, they rested according to the commandment and obedience to the law. And verse or chapter twenty four, verse one. Then, but, but, that's all that's behind that word right there. They didn't stay away much, uh, permanently. Because on Sunday, it says, chapter 24, verse 1, the first day of the week, they returned. Sunday was the first day of the week, the Sabbath being the last day or the seventh day of the week. So Sunday, the first day of the week, they returned where they returned where they returned to the, the place that they had known. They returned to the place that they saw. They returned to the the spot where they had seen Jesus. I mean, this isn't uh, anything super confusing for them. They saw exactly where he was laid, where the tomb was, how he was laid. They went home to prepare the spices, to honor the Sabbath, and then they returned on Sunday, the first day of the week, the tomb where Jesus was laid. They have the spices. They have the ointments with them that they had prepared, verse 1 says. And while they are away, they prepare these to apply to Jesus's body. Remember that the, the body would be wrapped in these linens, put spices and then wrapped again in more spices and wrapped again in oils to drown out the stench of the dead body. They went home to prepare more and they wanted to honor the Lord in this way. Now, at this point here, the reason why this is, like I told you, kind of that never ending box that you open. At this point here from the very start, as we're in verse one, the four gospel accounts are fairly different. So there's a lot going on here. Okay, You've got a a whole symphony of things happening within the other gospel accounts that you're trying to overlay and make sense of. And that's why it's going to take us a few weeks. The four gospel accounts are fairly different. We know that they're describing the same event. That's why we can put them together like this. They're once and for all events. In other words, Jesus didn't die twice. He didn't rise from the from the dead twice. This is the same event, right? Other times we have to be careful to overlay these things because it could be that Jesus was just teaching something similar in a different time. If you want to try to put his teachings together from the various gospel accounts, he could just be teaching something similar at a different event and really try to emphasize a different point. And so for you to put them together would be um, wouldn't be right. But here, this is the same event. This is a once and for all event. This is Jesus and his resurrection. That only happens once. We know it's the same event. So it becomes clear that these gospel writers are condensing at certain points. As they go through this, they're condensing and they're grouping things together thematically. They're grouping things together by theme. But also, they're telling their accounts really in an honest, natural Human, historic, real way. They're, they're telling of their accounts in an honest and natural way. And so under the inspiration, and this is how all of scripture is. Listen, that's why you see the various writers write differently. You go through the books of scriptures, their personalities are preserved. They don't become robots as they write scripture. This is a miraculous thing that, that is hard to make sense of, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, each writer is not restricted In a robotic way and each writer here in these gospel accounts of the resurrection, they're not restricted chronologically to to record things chronologically. There's no rules that say that each of them have to record them in chronological order. Okay, but each of them is writing them from their own perspective and they're all preserved and so they're putting various aspects in various points in a natural way that fits their personalities, their tendencies and communication. Just as it would be for you and I to tell a story to somebody, uh, as it would be natural for any of us. And so they do so from their own natural recollection, including aspects in natural ways that seem fit to them. But in all of this, writing exactly, word for word, what the Spirit of God intended them to write. That's a miracle. That's what the Bible says, that they were. That it was not from someone's own interpretation in a, in, a, in a strictly human sense, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. And so while some items are told chronologically, other items are placed in a summary type of way and uh and other things are pointed uh positioned thematically now i think this is genius because the accounts are clearly not copying each other right they're not copying each other if you were to make up an account you would make sure that each one matched perfectly And it would give you no reason for anyone, you would match them perfectly so so that no reason would be given to anyone to say in any way that these don't match. It displays clearly that these accounts are not fabricated. They're not fabricated. And I think that's especially interesting for this particular event. Because the accounts of the resurrection... They have the most variation out of all these events that we've read through the gospel. And it seems to be that this event is the most improbable and impossible event in human history. And so not only that, but everything hangs on this doctrine. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, we're all uh, by far the, the ones who are to be what? Most pitied. And so God here in this particular event, this particular recording, this account has the most variation. And I think this is wonderful because everything that God has done in salvation hangs on the truthfulness of the resurrection. That's why the religious leaders tried to cover it up Because it validates everything that Jesus said and did and taught. If he rose from the dead, then everything he says is true. And he's the Lord. And he accomplishes salvation. Everything hangs on this. In fact, as we'll see shortly, the Jews made up a lie to cover up this one particular event. One that's still circulating right now. So God, in his infinite wisdom, in a way that the world would say discredits the resurrection, actually more fully authenticates it by creating this and allowing this diversity in the recordings. These are not fabricated accounts. They're not copying one another. Someone didn't make this up. They never contradict each other, and yet they're expressed in this honest, natural way, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is overseeing every word that's written. Beautiful. By the way, something else that underscores the truthfulness of this account, besides the fact that it's in the Bible, and as Christians, we presuppose that the Bible is true because of Scripture's own testimony about the Bible, but something else that just really stands out is, as we'll see, the disciples' reactions later— As we'll look at the disciples' reactions when we get to point four, I think, they're not particularly flattering. They're honest, though, and they're real. They weren't expecting a resurrection. They're not even expecting it, nor do they believe it when it happens. And so for some to say that his disciples stole the body, fabricated the account, Um, and think about this, would there be any reason for all of these men to be martyred for something that they made up, right? But the church would have not created an account portraying its leaders in this way, at least not if they were smart. So with that said, I tell you all that because at first glance you could be confused at how this all transpires. This happened first, that happened first. Remember, they don't contradict one another. They're just, they're just, they're just written in an honest, natural way, grouped together differently. But let me tell you this. As you move through it, it doesn't leave you with many options about how this thing unfolds. As I mentioned, of course, the accounts don't contradict, but they help interpret one another. They help us to see a more full picture. Um, they're condensed at certain points. They differ in the order of the aspects mentioned, but as you bring them together, it becomes clear. So let's do that. We're going to start in verse one. Again, we're, we're, we're still in verse one here, and we've got to kind of unfold some of these boxes here. So verse one, it says, they, on the first day of the week at early dawn, what? They. Now who's they? They. We got to start there. It's important for the rest of the story. Who's they? Well, the pronoun here, they, includes three women specifically, if you look at the rest of the accounts, okay? So we had two women specifically before, Mary Magdalene and Mary, who saw the account. But as we look at this now, early dawn Sunday, there's three women specifically mentioned by name as we move through the accounts. Let's meet them. The first is Mary Magdalene. You know of Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter eight. She's the one who's healed of uh, demon possession. She's possessed by seven demons. And the Lord heals Mary, Mary Magdalene. And you you can see that testimony of her. Not now, don't turn there. Luke chapter eight. So we got Mary Magdalene. The second one who's here when we see this word they, because again, here at this point in Luke's account, like I told you, they're all giving us different details. Some omit some, some give us more specifics than others. This here, Luke doesn't give us who they are. So that's why we're, we're supplementing this and, uh, and we gotta move through it in this way. The the second one is another Mary. You got Mary Magdalene and then another Mary. Matthew twenty seven fifty six tells us, about this Mary. This Mary is the mother of James and Joseph, the mother of James and Joseph. Mark 1540 says she is the mother of James and Josis. Mark 1547 says that she's just the mother of Josis. So Joseph was clearly also known as Josis, which was common for that name to be um, used in both ways and he and james which are not to be confused is not to be confused with the lord's brother james they're the sons of this mary the second mary and john 19:25 tells us that she is the wife of clopas so we've got mary magdalene we've got mary the wife of clopas and the mother of james and joseph or josis and then mark 16:1 mentions the the third woman who is mentioned by name and her name is salome salome s a l o m e that's the other one who's here john 19:25 calls her the sister of mary the sister of mary jesus's mother so you put that together salome's jesus's who what aunt right this is jesus's aunt salome she's there Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six says she's the mother now, listen to this, of the sons of Zebedee. So they are the disciples, James and John. So the disciples, James and John, are Jesus's cousins. So you got James and John, the disciple, who are Jesus's cousins. You got Sloan, who's Jesus's aunt. She's there. Mark 3, 17 mentions that when Jesus chose those two disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, And when that happened, he named them Bonerges, which means, do you know, the sons of thunder, right? The sons of thunder. That's who's here, the mother of the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder are Jesus's cousins. And and I want to spend a minute here getting to know these guys. Um, The sons of thunder, why are they called that? Well, they're called that because of their immovable stance on the truth. And that's clear from Scripture. Their immovable stance on the truth. We often think of the disciple whom Jesus loved. James and who? John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, as, um, as this weak and timid man. But he was given the name, the son of what? Thunder. And I want to point out, this to us for for a minute as we get to know him. John was unwavering in the truth. You you see that in the the repetition of 1 John. You read the book of 1 John and the repetition regarding true disciples being ones who obey the what? Truth. And you can really just turn to 2 John for a second. Just turn there. It's a short book. Second John, you got first John, then you got second John. Go ahead and turn there. We're getting to know one of the sons of thunder here. I mean, you can just see it, right? The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the Truth, And not only I, but also who all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy and peace will be with us from God, the father from Jesus Christ, the father's son in and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Just as we were commanded by the Father, now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another, that, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who did not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Remember, I told you at the incarnation teaching how important it was for us to be people who believe in the incarnation, right? Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring you this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper or ink. Instead, I'm going to come to you. Talk face to face. He's serious about the truth, isn't he? Turn one page over to third John. We see the same thing here. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in what? Truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be good in health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your... Truth, even truth, inspires our giving. I've written something to the church of deatrophies who likes to put himself first and does not acknowledge our authority. They say that they were disqualified because they don't like the truth. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wickedness and nonsense against us and uh, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not he he would not uh, support anyone who supported the apostles. John standing for the truth and the truth of the apostles' teaching, and you could go on here. Now, listen. If you go to Revelation, just turn another book, uh, another couple pages over. Revelation chapter one. This is how John chooses to start Revelation chapter one: the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants that the things. That must soon take uh, uh, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. He's passionate about the truth of what God reveals, what God says and keeping it. Go to his last words in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22. He says in verse 18, verses 18 through 20. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, if you even go back to his gospel, go to the gospel of John. Go to the gospel of John here. And at the very end of his entire account, the gospel of John in chapter 21, verse 24 He writes, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is what? True. Now, what's the reason he's so concerned about this truth? Flip back one page, chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the son of thunder. He's loving, but he is concerned about the what? Truth. Why? Because he just said it. God's name and people's salvation is at at stake, are at stake. That's why he's so concerned. John had an unwavering commitment to the truth, which is undoubtedly the purpose for which Jesus kept him alive. If you go back even over one page in chapter 21, Hope you're staying with me here. In verses 20 through 23, you remember this interaction with Jesus after he rose from the dead? He basically asked Jesus how long he was going to be alive because Jesus spoke about Peter's death, right? That Peter was going to be crucified. John said, well, uh, or Peter asked about uh, uh, John's, John's death because the Lord Jesus talked about Peter dying. And uh, P- uh, Jesus said to Peter that John was going to pretty much stay alive, Right? Although he didn't uh, guarantee it to Peter, he just spoke of Peter not caring really about whether or not John stays alive or not. He's just going to do what Jesus says. But he keeps John alive. The truth is he does longer. John is exiled to the island of what? Patmos, where then he faithfully exactly writes what Jesus told him To write. And then he doesn't write what Jesus tells him what? Not to write. And so, John, oftentimes we emphasize this love that he has, but what was his love? His love was for God and for others. And the way that he showed this was by standing for the truth. And listen, let me just say this, beloved, because I think this is an important point. John emphasized love, but it wasn't less than God's love. It wasn't less than God's love. God's love upholds God's truth. That's God's love because truth brings life and brings blessing and error brings compromise and brings death and brings destruction and brings dishonor. And so I think this is important to mention because you see, I think in the church these days, we ignore or we compromise on God's truth for the sake of, quote unquote, love. And I see this a lot. And as I was studying John and, 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 and his life and, and, uh, and, and him being the son of thunder and, and following his writings, and some of which I just showed you, and you can go back and look at those. We went to him quick. But I think we ignore the fact that true love is sharing God's truth. That's true love. And I want to ask you, when people do that, I want to ask, are you more loving than God? Are you more loving than God is? Because if you're willing to compromise God's truth for the sake of what you call to be love, then you're claiming to be more loving than God. Are you more loving than God? You see, that's, that's, that's the reality. If we're, if we're willing to compromise God's truth for the sake of just loving someone, then we're claiming to be more loving than God. God's love upholds God's truth. The most loving thing that you can do for someone is tell them God's truth. You see that? Don't be captivated by what the world says love is. Don't be tricked, friends. Listen, that's not God's love. That's less than God's love. It's being wise in your own eyes, it's looking out for your own interest, it's people pleasing, it's failing to take God at His word. You know who the most loving people in the world are? Those who stick to God's truth, they take it for what it says. They take it at face value. They believe that God means what he says in the word and they stand by it even if it seems un-what? Loving. Because that truth is what will save a soul, what will honor God, what will honor Christ, what will keep the church pure and holy and true and will bring salvation to people. They're the ones, the most loving people in the world are the ones who believe God means what he says And who love God so much that they have to stick with what he says. And they love people enough to point them to the truth, no matter the consequences. You want to know the people who have loved you the most? Because oftentimes, I I think we're very confused about who our friends are. Who, Who are our friends? Well, they're the ones who point us to the truth. Those are our true friends. Those, who, that, those are the people who have loved you the most. They're not the people who are most fun to hang out with necessarily or the ones whose approval you want. We tend to make those people our best friends because you want their approval. Listen, the, mo- the people who have loved you the most in your life are the people who have told you the truth, who have shared the gospel with you, who have pointed you to Christ, who have helped you come to salvation, who've helped you overcome your sin, who've helped you care for uh, the, the things that God wants you to care for. Those are the people who have loved you the most. And you're the most loving. You're the most loving to the people around you when you tell them the truth, right? When you tell them the truth. For instance, you're the most loving to lost people, to the lost person, not when you can hang out with them and fit into their group. That's not when you're being loving. Well, they like me. You want to know when you're the most loving to the lost person? When you share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if that leads to them not liking you anymore. That's true love. The most loving people in your life are the ones who minister the word of God to you. They've loved you the most, even if the world would see, well, they're not your best friends because you haven't known them the longest. You don't hang out with them the most. You don't text with them most often. Well, listen now. The ones who have truly loved you the most are the ones who have pointed you to the word of God. And this is how you are to love others. And so I think this is an incredible lesson to learn when you think about John being the one whom the disciple loved, the one whom loved Jesus, right? The the disciple whom Jesus loved and the one who loved Jesus with his whole heart and the one who was called the son of thunder because he stood for the what? truth. That's an incredible picture. So I will tell you this though, too, this kind of love takes courage because it's backwards from the world's version of love to the world. This is being unloving to the world. You're unloving if you say the truth, but I want to tell you the consequences that will come your way. If you stick to the truth, listen, now this is, this is an okay rabbit trail for us to follow because if you stick to the truth, Think about Jesus. Think about Jesus. If you're more concerned with obedience to the truth, to tell the truth to people, to point them to the word of God, think about what Jesus did. His whole entire life, all he did was tell the what? Truth his whole life. Never once did he say anything different. You know what they said about him? You're have, you have a demon. You're a blasphemer. You're a, drunk, a drunkard. You're disqualified to be the Messiah. You're threatening Caesar You've conspired uh, how you might destroy the the Jewish religion. You, he, they took, it says they took offense at him. They told him he deserved death. Now think about all the prophets before them. what they do? Their job was to tell the what? Truth. And what happened to every one of them? They were killed. Now, what happened to, to Paul? What about the rest of the apostles? If you hold to God's truth for a lifetime, many will consider you to be unloving and crazy. Are you willing to stand for the truth because you know that that's true love? Those are the ones who God will honor and they will see a lot of people come to know Christ. Listen, this is important. Jesus said, beware of beware when all men speak well of you. Beware. If no one is, is lying about you or misunderstanding you beware because you're probably compromising the what truth. You're probably compromising the truth. So, this is John, the beloved, loving apostle who stands for the truth. And uh, James, by the way, his brother in Acts twelve two says that he was martyred early on in the church. Like the, one of the first ones to be martyred. The sons of thunder. He's died the earliest here because he was uncompromising with the truth. So you wanna stand for the truth, expect that. And, um, and so here... By the way, all of this is just helping us to see just these characters involved here. Let's go back to Luke chapter 24. This is also, so So you got Salome, the wife, uh, the mother of John and James. James is also, this is not the half brother of Christ, James. Um, and uh, Mark 6, three tells us that Jesus had brothers. Catholic church says that he doesn't, he does. He's got brothers, literal Half brothers: James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. He's got sisters too. The Bible says, and uh, Jesus's brother James is the one who wrote the book of James. So Luke twenty four one, they referencing who? Mary Magdalene, who was demon possessed, healed by Jesus. Mary, the wife of Clopas, mother of James and Joseph. Salome, who's Jesus's aunt, who's the mother of the disciples James and John, and now. In addition to this, when it says they in chapter twenty four verse one there 's more women here matthew twenty seven fifty five says that there were many women who followed him from Galilee, so these names we don 't know so think about this these are all the women there salome Mary, Mary, and all this this, uh, these, this this big group of women who followed him from Galilee. And all of these people are coming to the tomb on Sunday morning. Now, as we piece these accounts together and do so chronologically, let me point out a couple more things and we'll be done for today. Mark 16.3 says that while they were on their way, okay? So this is moving us up to, to, to this current point here. While they're on their way, they were saying to one another, it says, all these women, they left together, they had their spices We know the three women specifically who are there. We got this other big group, excuse me, big group of women. On their way, they're discussing something. What are they discussing? Well, the Bible says they're discussing who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb. Remember, Matthew 27, 62, 66 tells us that on the Sabbath, when the women were obeying the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders disobeyed the Sabbath and they went to whose house? Whose house they go to, you remember? Pilate. While the women were obeying the Sabbath, they go to Pilate's house and they ask for what? Guards to come to the tomb. Now there's a a stone there, but what they don't know is that there are also what? Guards there. So even though they claim to have uh, you know, they claim to be able to um, understand that Jesus is not the, the Christ, right? They, they guarantee it. They're also trying to have this tomb guarded so Jesus can't be seen as the Christ by the people. So there's these guards there. So when these, when these women are on the way, they're talking about who will roll away the stone. But what they also don't know, there are guards there. And... Um, and so that's that's kind of their plan on the way. They can't they can't risk the claim of Jesus rising from the dead. So that so the Jewish leaders try to try to control the situation. So while the women are on their way, they're discussing the the, the stone, but there's no discussion about the guards. There's no discussion about the guards, but the guards won't be there because they're going to have an encounter with an angel who's going to put them in a divine coma. And And then they're going to go out to the city. So before they act, um, these two angels, John 20 says, are going to appear to to these guards. So now at this point, John 21 says, 20 verse 1 says this. Follow along with me. We're almost done. It says that Mary Magdalene arrives first while it was still dark. So here's what happens. These angels appear, and they're they're like lightning. These angels are like lightning. And they appear to the guards. And they're in dress, it says they're in pure white. They're like lightning. They appear to the guards, and they put the guards into a coma. And the guards leave, and they go into the city. And. This is all happening while the women are on the way. And then Mary Magdalene, it says in chapter 20, verse 1, which Luke doesn't show us here in this chapter, arrives first while it was still dark. So the guards are gone. It's on the brink of dawn. That's why some of these accounts say early dawn. Some of them say while still dark. Some of them say while the sun come up, right? You can say that about dawn. Mary Magdalene shows up first. She's probably younger than the rest of the ladies. She hurries up. She gets to the tomb. She's discussing on the way who's going to roll away the tomb with the rest of the ladies. She goes on ahead. She arrives while it's still dark. The rest of the ladies are probably a mile or so behind her. They arrive when the sun's coming up. Now at this point, verse two, we see they found the stone rolled away. And, uh, and John, I mean, Luke again is, is condensing here. At this point, Mary arrives, finds the tomb first, With the stone rolled away, she doesn't look inside, and she automatically assumes that the body is stolen. The body's stolen. How do we know that? Because that's exactly what she goes to tell James and John, that the body's stolen. And she thinks that it's stolen by grave robbers. So she doesn't see the organized folded linens. She doesn't see any angels inside inside. She gets to the tomb first, John says. She turns right around and she goes and tells John and Peter. And the other women are still on the way, okay? And the guards are gone. They've seen the angel and they've walked into the city and we're gonna see them again later. So John 20 and Mark 16 tells us she turns around right away. She goes, tells James and John. Mark 16 says at that point, Peter, I'm, I'm sorry, Peter and John, Peter and John are weeping when she arrives and she tells them that the body's been stolen. And then at this point, Peter and John run to the tomb. They run to the tomb. And, uh, and so if you turn in chapter 24, look in chapter 24, look at the end here. See verse 12 here? Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves and went home marveling at what had happened. That's actually happening earlier, and it's placed there thematically for the disciples' reactions. That happens earlier when Mary Magdalene comes and tells Peter and John what had happened. They turn, they run to the tomb. So Mary Magdalene goes on ahead. She gets there first. The stones rolled away. The guards are gone because the angels have come. Mary Magdalene turns around, goes and tells Peter and John. She gets there and uh, they then begin running to the tomb. And that's where we pick up in verses two through three. So look at here, chapter 24, verses two through three. They found the stone, what? Rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of of the Lord Jesus. And so this is the initial discovery here. All of this put together, what we find is that the women have come to the tomb. They've found no body. Mary Magdalene's come to the tomb. She's found no body. Peter and John are on their way. They're gonna find no body. The guards have been put in uh, in a coma-like state from the two angels. They know that they're in trouble because there's no body anymore and they're gonna get in trouble. And they go into the city. And so this all is gonna lead us to what heaven says actually happened, which is the declaration that we're gonna see next. So listen now, as we close, I wanna point out something. The fact is, is that heaven is gonna declare next week what has actually happened here. What has actually happened here? Heaven's gonna declare what happened. The angels are gonna declare what happened. And then we're going to see the response of these disciples. Now, for us, heaven's already declared what happened in the scriptures. Heaven's declared what has happened, that Jesus rose from the dead. The question is, what's your response to it? Right? What's your response to it? Do you believe he's Lord? And will you follow him? Or will you disbelieve and turn away. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask you by your grace to point us to the truth and to the reality of this situation. It's amazing to see this scripture. It's amazing to see what has taken place here. That the Lord Jesus His body at this point is not there. That the women have come, Mary Magdalene on ahead, empty tomb. Peter and John being on their way, they'll find an empty tomb. The women then coming a little later, finding an empty tomb. The guards being shown by the angels, this divine reality of an empty tomb. And Lord, we know that next, as we see this, heaven will declare what has happened. I pray by your grace that as we think about our response to this, that we would be people who believe this message, that we would be people who respond by faith to this message, and that uh, that we would be saved because of it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, church, we're going to.